Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 6 tonight. We're in a series on a biblically authentic ministry. And tonight we're in part two of a message on establishing a biblically authentic leadership. Last time we talked about a biblically authentic leadership as it relates to the pastor and what a pastor is supposed to be. Tonight we pick up in uh, chapter 3 and talk about what a deacon is supposed to be. And so this is the chapter where Paul deals with leadership within the church. And one of the problems that the church has is settling for good rather than the best. Uh, Lowering the standard to try to fill a position. Rather than keeping the biblical standard and making sure that we never drop below that in filling whatever leadership positions we might possibly have. So Paul gives us some guidelines. After giving us guidelines for overseers and elders, he gives us guidelines and qualifications for a deacon. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, the origin of deacons is there. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of bread. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now there was a problem in the church, and the problem in verse 1 was dissension. There was dissension in the church because a group of widows were not being ministered to. The Hellenistic widows, the Jewish Gentile widows were not being ministered to like the Jewish widows were being ministered to. The danger was this was going to become a distraction for the apostles that they were going to get off dealing with issues and putting out fires and that they would avoid doing the very thing that God had called them to do. And so the solution was delegation in verse 3. There was a danger of dissension, the problem of dissension, the danger of distraction, and the solution was delegation. The apostles recognized this complaint. And in seeing this complaint and in seeing this problem, they began to deal with it because they knew it could potentially cause the church to lose her focus. And so the apostles, recognizing this dissension and the danger of a distraction, set up a ministry, the ministry that came to be known as the ministry of deacons. Now, as most commentators would agree, the office of deacons was not created here. But the service was. There were seven men to be set aside for ministry. Verse 3 says, so we will not neglect what we're supposed to be doing, which is prayer and ministry of the Word. The solution to the problem was delegation. The apostles gave the deacons their authority under the Word of God to do the job that needed to be done to deal with this problem. Now, this is not anything new. Moses chose the men who would help him. Elijah chose the man who would help him. Uh, Paul talked about pay close attention to your teaching. When he was talking to Timothy, he told him not to get entangled in the affairs of everyday life, but to preach the word in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
So what happened here is what was born out of necessity evolved and became an established office in the life of the church early on in the life of the church. By the time the necessity had been dealt with and Paul wrote his letters from A.D. 35 to about A.D. 60, in the time that Paul wrote his letters, this office had become established in the life of the church. Now there's an outline there of the different words for service. The word means through the dust. Through the dust. And it is a transliteration of the word diakonos. Now there's the word diakoneo, which means to serve. Diakonia, which means service or minister, which is used 34 times. And diakonos, which is the noun servant, which is used 29 times. The term appears nearly 100 times in the New Testament. However, most of the times the term is used, it's not used in relation to the office. It is used in relationship to our ministry in the church. When it is used as the office, it's very clear. Now what we'll look at tonight is the office of deacon because that's what Paul's looking at. But the office really is something that's set aside, but the ministry is always there because Jesus said that we are the greatest when we are servants. And the word means to serve, to minister, to help, to assist someone. The original meaning was related to a menial task, waiting on tables and ministering to widows. Now what is phenomenal about this is how these are qualifications for something that would appear to the world to be very menial. Now, when you see the words in Scripture, administration, cared for, serve, support, or preparation, those are often translations of the same word from which we get our word deacon. In fact, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 12, 5 says there are varieties of ministries. The word there is diakonion. It is a variety of deacons, a variety of ministries that God has given us. When the term is used for the office, it is used to say those in this office are to be models of ministry, models of ministry for the rest of the church. Now let's look at qualifications. <clears throat> Presbyterians call theirs elders. Methodists call theirs stewards. Baptists call theirs deacons. I heard a story about a Baptist who had a new neighbor move in next door to him, and the neighbor needed to cut his yard. In fact, the Baptist guy had noticed that the neighbor needed to cut his yard. And one day the neighbor came over and said, Listen, can I borrow your lawnmower? He said, Well, I don't really like to loan out my, my equipment because, you know, last time I loaned my hedge trimmers to somebody, they, they never brought them back and they moved off. And, I just don't like loaning my stuff out. He said, well, man, I really need to borrow a lawnmower. He said, I, I don't have a lawnmower. We've just moved in. We've got some family coming in from out of town, and I really need to borrow a lawnmower. Listen, my wife and I are Methodists. We go to the Methodist church right down the street. In fact, I'm a Methodist steward. I said, well, <clears throat> okay, all right, I'll let you borrow it. So he goes in and tells his wife, I said, well, the neighbor came over to borrow the lawnmower. She said, really? She said, honey, what is a Methodist steward? And she said, well, dear, it's kind of like a Baptist deacon. And the guy said, oh, Lord, I've lost my lawnmower. (laughs) 
You see, everybody tells preacher jokes, but when we go to conventions, we tell deacon jokes. <laughs> Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. I want you to look at the qualifications for a man to be able to minister to widows and to wait on tables and to deal with murmuring in the church. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Now notice what the qualifications are. Number one, from among you. They're not outsiders. They're people that you know. Brethren has to do with folks that you know have a sound and sure testimony. They are people with a testimony. And they're clear about their testimony. They're unapologetic about their testimony. They are to be of good reputation. They have a good track record in the church and outside the church. Full of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is evident in these people. They're walking in the power of the Spirit and of wisdom. In other words, they have a skill for living in a right way. Now, the qualifications for the office now are given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. <clears throat> Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice, if you remember what we talked about with pastors, that several of the qualifications for deacons are the same as those for pastors, which tells me that leadership is demanding no matter what level you're on. No matter what the level of leadership a person has in a church, that level of leadership is demanding as far as its character qualities and the things that are to be evident in that person's life. It is a tragedy to me that many churches never look seriously at what the Bible says about selecting deacons. I think I said when I first came here that uh, most churches, well, you can get to be a deacon if you sing in the choir, serve as an usher, or work with young people because those are the most visible men in the church. It doesn't necessarily mean they're the most qualified men in the church. It means they're the most visible, and when their names are on a list, people say, oh, I know them. That means they must be good for a deacon. Now, the truth of the matter is, some of the greatest deacons are people that you don't know in a vocal or visible way. But they are people who have all the character qualities and all the spirit of a deacon, although they may not be visible. I, I can remember one church where, honest to goodness, the 8th grade Sunday school department voted in a deacon because they voted as a block for their director, and that gave that man more votes than somebody else who was much more qualified because it was a popularity vote. Now, we don't have a popularity vote here. We approve those who have gone through a screening process with a deacon selection committee, and I think that is more biblical and more New Testament because I don't believe that a popularity vote ever gets you who is supposed to be in the office. I don't think you go out and you get five preachers and you line them up one after other, and whichever one has the best sugar stick sermon on that day, you call him as pastor. I think that's a mistake. 
you're judging on externals, not on internal character qualities. And so Paul gives the requirements for deacons here. The problem is that sometimes people are deacons to gain status in the community. Uh, you'll hear somebody say, well, I'm a deacon at the church, or I, I serve as a deacon. And there have been times in our culture and in our history, particularly as Southern Baptists, when we made a man a deacon when we didn't know what else to do with him. He'd been in the church so long, the only other thing we knew to do was to honor him by making him a deacon. That's tragic to do that to a man because you don't know what else to do with him. And then there's a danger when we think we deserve the office. When a person thinks, I've been in this church long enough, or I've been a part of this long enough, or I've done enough that I deserve to be a deacon, I don't think I deserve to be a pastor. I've been called to do that. I think a man needs to have a sense of God's call on his life to serve in the office of deacon. So let's look at the characteristics. Number one, he is to be above reproach. The word means men of dignity or seriously, stately, serious in mind and character. The root means to worship. These men are to be men of dignity. They are to be holy men. They consider things to be sacred. There's no room for shallowness and superficiality in their life. They are men who are dignified. That doesn't mean stiff. It means that they don't treat holy things lightly. Secondly, they are to keep a confidence, not double-tongued. This is the only time, in fact, that this term is used in the New Testament. It can also mean not hypocritical. New English Bible says not indulging in double-talk. Their speech is characterized by honesty and integrity which means they don't say something to one group and say something else to another group. Now, I wasn't here when this was started, but, but I heard about this almost from the day that I came here. When Mr. Height was here, how many of you were here when Mr. Height was here? Mr. Height was one of those men, there, there are people that cast shadows long after they're gone. And I never had the privilege of meeting him. I'm going to meet him one day in heaven. I'm going to thank him for a lot of things that I've heard that he did in the life of this church. But Mr. Height established something when he was deacon chairman, I guess, in this church that has always stayed true to form in this church, or at least it's supposed to. And that is when the deacons have met and discussed and debated or whatever they've done in a deacon's meeting, when they leave that deacon's meeting, the deacons are always unanimous on whatever the vote was. That means if the vote was 25 to 23, when the deacons leave the room, the deacons voted to do this. You don't go out and say, well, 25 voted for and 23 voted against. Because the policy became, in their thought, we are to be of one mind and one heart, and we are to be together on things. Now, am I right in that? And those of you who are, am I... Am I right? Did that, did Mr. Hyde, Roy help me? You and Dub help me. Is that, that pretty much on target? That things were to be done, and you didn't walk out of deacon's meeting and say, well, I wasn't for that. I was against that. Because the deacons were to be people who kept a confidence, which means if there was a disagreement in deacon's meeting, it was never to be talked among the church. And a man was not even supposed to go tell his wife. There's not double-tongued, not indulging in double-talk. You see, here's the purpose. Deacons are to put out fires, not fan flames. The role of the deacon 
is to put out fires and not fan flames. And nothing destroys the confidence of a church more than somebody who is double-tongued, who says one thing to one group and says another thing to another group. The Scripture says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We are to speak the same with everybody. And so one of the things is to keep a confidence. I've just got a little statement for you to write down if you want to write, down, write it down. People tend to be down on what they aren't up on. And sometimes deacons feel the need to try to get everybody up to speed on something, but sometimes it violates a confidence. And deacons are informed on confidential matters sometimes, and if they don't keep it confidential, they're double-tongued. That's a disqualifying mark in the life of a deacon. The deacons were called on to settle a controversy in Acts chapter 6, and you cannot settle a dispute if you're creating one. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 13, he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. You know what? I know the truth about a lot of people in this church. You'll never get it out of me either because there are things that have been said to me in confidence and there are things that have been said to me in quiet and it's nobody's business but them and with me. If they choose to share it with somebody else, that's their business. But if someone has shared something in confidence with me, it is my responsibility as a leader to keep that confidence. Now, number three, not indulgent or addicted. Or addicted to much wine, he says. NIV says not indulging in much wine. Uh, New English says given neither to excessive drinking. The term addicted to means to turn one's mind to or to occupy oneself with. Now, we can get into a lot of discussion on this, but I think it's the same thing that happens in what he talked about in pastors, and I think Romans 14 deals with it too. Anything that has control over you is not acceptable. Whether it's food or alcohol or television or whatever it is, anything that you can't do without is an addiction. And we believe to hold the standard high. I would rather hold the standard too high than not hold it high enough. We believe in this society and in this culture because of what drinking has done and drunk driving has done that it is not acceptable for a man to be a deacon who uses alcohol. We believe that that means that, you know, you can get into a debate about it if you want to, but our standard is very clear. Because of social implications and because of spiritual implications, we believe that means no alcohol for a man in this society and in this culture. Now, you can go to cultures in the world where it's not a problem. In this culture, it is a problem. And therefore, because Romans 14 talks about the strong and the weak, even if you're strong in that area and you think you can handle it, for the sake of the weaker brother, you shouldn't. Number four, honest with money, uh, or fond of sordid gain, Paul says. What Paul is talking about there is, is the deacon should not use his office as a means of making money. He should never say, you know, I'm a deacon down at the church, so you can trust me. The deacon never uses his office for some get-rich-quick scheme. You see, the cultic religious leaders in Ephesus were using religion to make money. So with money, there must be no impure motives or unclean hands. Now, I think that God's Word is just as serious about this as it is about alcohol. 
I think every one of these characteristics are equal. We sometimes pull out and we say, well, the only thing we're worried about is whether the guy drinks or not. I'm worried if he's fond of sordid gain. I'm also worried if he's double-tongued because all of these qualifications are equal in the eyes of God. Number five, love for the word, verse nine, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I remember in verse five of chapter one, he talked about the goal of our instruction. In chapter three and verse nine, he talks about the evidences then of sitting under the word and applying it to your life. He talks about the mystery of the faith. Now, you know what a mystery is. A mystery is a revealed truth that is previously hidden, but now revealed. The mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the indwelling of the Spirit, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the church, a revealed truth. This man is supposed to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, there's a quote there by Warren Wiersbe. He says, it is important to manage the affairs of a church on the basis of the Word of God. The Scriptures were the constitution of the early church, a deacon who does not know the Bible is an obstacle to progress in a local assembly. A deacon who does not know the Word of God cannot manage the affairs of the church of God. A deacon who does not live the Word of God but has a defiled conscience can't manage the church of God. Notice that Paul says, with a clear conscience. That means a conscience that does not accuse him. He not only believes the truth, he behaves in light of what he believes. There's a clear conscience. He holds convictions, and those convictions hold him. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would. Second, hold your place in 1 Timothy. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll see there another reference of Paul to this conscience that we're supposed to have. If Layman Strauss were here, he would say, it would be good for your pastor sometime to do a study on the word conscience. I'm doing as close as I can without him here. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. The testimony of our conscience is holiness and godly sincerity, not fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the right way. And so a man is to have a love for the Word. Now, that does not mean that all deacons are to be teachers, but it means that all deacons are to be familiar enough with the Word that they know when a cultic influence is coming in, that they recognize heresy, that they see error, and they deal with it because they're not tone, uh, torn apart by somebody who's teaching something that has a variation of truth in it but has error mixed in it. So a deacon is supposed to be a man who, the, he's the first guy that the light goes off and says, you know, that's not right. That doesn't bear witness with what my Bible says, and it doesn't bear witness with the Holy Spirit inside of me. A deacon doesn't have to be a teacher, but he certainly has to be a man who is sensitive to the truth of the Word of God, which means he's a student of the Word of God. Number six, accountable. Let these also first be tested then. Let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, remember the term beyond reproach is the same qualifications for elders. Philip says, let them serve a period of probation first. Now why? 
Well, because people are not always what they seem to be. And you don't judge a man by the surface. You watch him over a period of time. That's why in this church we say for a person to be a deacon, they have to be a member here at least a year before they can be a deacon. Why? To observe their lives, to make sure that they are living the kind of life that is beyond and above reproach. Now, I want you to look at the word tested. That word tested is, in fact, present tense. And here's what it means. It means an ongoing test, not a one-time test. Because it is in present tense, it means it is to be continually tested. Now, you know what they did in the first century, how they tested pottery. They put pottery up to a fire, and they put it up to a light to see if there were any cracks in it. And if there were no cracks in the pottery, then that pottery was approved. It had been tested. It had passed the test. It is the job of the church to hold up the potential deacon to the light and see if there are any cracks there. Anything that keeps that person from being qualified, anything that keeps them from being above reproach that they need to work on in their life. Now, that means that just because you one time served as a deacon doesn't mean you always get to. You see, the word is important. There's a reason why God's Holy Spirit used a present tense there. It means you don't make somebody a deacon and then no matter what they do, they get to keep being a deacon every time a vote comes up. It means that they are continually tested. And one of the great things that our church does is even if a man has served as a deacon and only been off for a year, he goes again through an interview process with a deacon selection team to make sure he is still on target with his life. Why is that important? Because the office is so, so very strategic. And so you have to raise the standard up. I'm, I'm preaching a revival in a few weeks in my home church. Every time I do this, I tell God, please don't make me do that again. And every time I do it, I tell my wife, I'm never going back and preaching a revival in my home church again. And every time they call, God says, you've got to go. And that, it, just, it just frustrates me. I just want God to release me from all that. <laughs> I can name a man in my home church right now. And I guess God calls me there because I'm not afraid of them. And I don't worry about the love offering. There's a man in my home church right now that every time Deacon Vogt comes up and he's been off for a year, he gets back on. I know for a fact, since 19 mid-70s, that man was having an affair on his wife he left his wife, he married another woman, and he's still been a deacon almost every year for the last 25 years. Now, folks, that's wrong. That's wrong. You don't give a man a position of leadership when the community mocks him and laughs at him. And I can look back, and I can, when my dad tells me who's on the deacon body, it's like somebody taking fingernails and going down a chalkboard with me. It just drives me up a wall. Because I know those people. I grew up under those people. I know what they're like. And some of them are meaner than the devil himself. I mean, they'd give a demon a run for his money. And some of them are so carnal and so ungodly and they have no interview process. None. They simply put a list of men out there and the one that gets the most votes wins. 
That is not the way the Bible says to do it. A man is to be continually tested. Also, the word also, let these also first be tested, refers back to the elders. In other words, elders, pastors, overseers, and deacons are to be continually tested. We don't get off the hook just because we have a job. And deacons don't get off the hook just because they have a position. It is a continual testing. Now, number seven, husband of one wife. Ah. There are at least five major interpretations of this. And if you think I'm going to get in all five, you're crazy. I think husband of one wife means he's faithful, he has fidelity, he's not a flirt, he's not a skirt chaser, he's married, he's loyal, he's faithful in his mind, he's faithful in his conduct, and he's faithful in his character. He's the husband of one wife. Now, you can get into debate, and there are scholars that disagree about this, about whether that some say, well, if he was married and divorced before he was saved, then that, that means that it ought to be okay for him to serve. And there's some good arguments for that. But here's what I believe. This is my opinion. I think the office is so critical that we need to hold the standard as high as we can. And I think that means that when you somebody walked the aisle with somebody and it said, for better or worse, till death do us part, that that's the standard God wants for the leadership of the church. Now, does that mean that people who have been divorced are not qualified to serve? It simply means they're not qualified for the office. It does not mean they don't have something very significant to offer the church. They're just not qualified for the office. Number eight, strong family life. Verse 12, the last part, they're concerned about their kids, their family, the security of their home, the structure of their home. They protect and oversee their life. A deacon must have a strong family life. Now, <clears throat> there are qualifications for women. I bet you thought I was going to skip that, didn't you? Paul wouldn't let me. Verse 10. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. The qualifications for women. Some of you look so serious right now, it just makes me want to cry. <laughs> Three major interpretations of this verse. Number one, that they were the wives of deacons. Number two, the Greek word is the root word for which we get our word gynecology. And it could mean women in general. One interpretation is that Paul here is referring to the wives of deacons. Another is that he is referring to women in general. The third is women deacons. Now, we know, based on Acts 18 and Romans 16, that Phoebe was a significant servant in the church. She was the one who delivered the letter to the Romans. Whether or not she was a deacon or a deaconess, you can debate that. And you can debate it with very conservative people who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture about that. Now, my opinion... <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> These were women, this is my opinion. These were women who were serving in very significant ministry functions but did not have the office 
of deacons. Now, I've come to another conclusion in my study. This is not a hill I want to die on. This is not a stump I want to blow up. This is not an issue I want an appointment over this week. Hint, hint. <laughs> this is my opinion. It was not until the third and fourth century that the church began ordaining people to ministry and as deacons. Before the third and fourth century, people were merely set aside and selected based on their character and the needs of the church. Therefore, if you get purely New Testament, the ordination of deacons and even of ministers is not in the Bible. The setting apart and setting aside of them, but a certificate and a piece of paper is not in there. And so here's my conclusion that I'm not willing to die on and I'm not willing to debate, and if you want to disagree with me, you can, and I'll still take you out to supper if you pick up the bill. <laughs> if the issue for a man or a woman is ordination, then their motive disqualifies them from the office. We have a great agenda going on in our convention today over the ordination of women and whether or not churches ordain women. I personally think it is a senseless debate because I think the greatest ministry a woman has, which we've already talked about in 1 Timothy, is the nurturing ministry, whatever role that takes. And I just, you know, I just want to ask these women who are just you know, flared nostrils wanting to be ordained. Why do you want to go to a meeting? Why go to meetings? I mean, wouldn't you just rather stay home and, and watch entertainment tonight or something? I mean, couldn't that be better than going to a meeting? You see, I, I just think it's a, become a big issue about the ordination of women, and quite honestly, I believe that what Paul is dealing with here is just women who are serving in significant areas. Now, let's look at the words that he uses. A woman is called to serve. That means whether she's teaching Sunday school or whatever she's doing, then these are the characteristics that God expects that the church should be able to see in that woman. Verse 8, dignified. Same word as verse 8 is in verse 10. She is to be dignified. She's to, to demand respect because of her devotion to God. Number two, not a gossip. The word is a slanderer. She's not a slanderer. It's often used to describe Satan, and it's a term translated devil in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Temperate. She's to be sober in her judgment and faithful in all things. As a wife, as a mom, as a servant, as a church worker, she's to be counted on and to be faithful in all things. And let me give you some summary statements that are not in your notes and then we're through. Number one, a church never rises above the level of leadership. A church never rises above the level of her leadership. Statement number two, a leadership never rises above the level of its prayer life. A church never rises above the level of leadership. A leadership never rises above the level of its prayer life. And the level of your prayer life is determined by your character. What you believe, what you stand for. So... 
Christian leadership is always about character, and excellence is a character of God, and excellence should be the standards for God's churches. Denny says this, There have always been men in the world so clever that God could make no use of them. They could never do His work because they were so lost in the admiration of their own selves. But God's work must never depend on them, and it doesn't depend on them. It depends on those who, when they see Jesus Christ, become unconscious once and forever of all that they have called their own wisdom and their strength. The supreme law of the kingdom is still the glory of God and not the glory of clever men. Great is the Lord and worthy of glory. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. Thank you for watching the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. We would enjoy hearing from you with your comments or how we may be able to meet a need in your life. If you'd like to get in touch with us, just write to the address that you see on the screen or call us at area code 912-883-1910. That's area code 912-883-1910. Now, if you'd like a copy of today's message, just call us or request it by mail. Be sure to ask for the tape number that you see at the bottom of your screen. Once again, we are delighted that you've joined us for the Sherwood Hour.